Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is Gargi, and today I have the ple- pleasure to talk to Dr. Ruan Cantor with me. She's Assistant Professor of English and Comparative Literature at University of Stanford. Hi, Dr. Ruan Cantor. How are you today? I'm great. I'm so excited to be here. Um, she's here uh, to talk about her new book, uh, South Asian Writers, Latin American Literature and the Rise of Global English, published early this year with uh, Cambridge University Press. So as always, I want to talk at the beginning. What is the genesis of this book? What were your some initial ideas when you started writing this? Well, the genesis of this book is now really old. This is what happens when you do a PhD and then you have to write a book on top of it. I'm warning you, <laughs> um, it takes forever. So it's the genesis of the book is actually sort of the mirror image of the book that ended up coming out because I came into South Asian literature and really into Indian literature first already having a background in Latin American literature. And I think maybe that shows a little bit in the, the orientation of the book that was written. But I was recruited by a Latin Americanist for my PhD into a university that happened to be very strong in the literatures of India and the literatures of Latin America. And what I imagined initially that I was doing was looking at the strategies of representation among this smaller cohort of Latin American writers who ended up spending time in India. And you do see many of those writers appear in the book. And the chapter that everybody likes best, that I also like best, is the first one on Pablo Neruda. And the Neruda chapter is all about sort of that. So you can see the echo of that. But as I went on, I sort of wasn't interested in the theoretical questions that that cohort was raising. I didn't want to get into those arguments. I didn't feel all that excited by the spaces that it was bringing me into. And I kept finding more stuff about South Asian writers. Um, And so I was like, well, I guess we'll just build this on the side. And then I got a job in English 
And the English department was not very interested at all in Latin American studies, but it was pretty interested in um, South Asia or India in particular, in part because there's this really long tradition of studying India as the kind of center of a particular idea of post-colonial studies. And I'm both hugely, hugely indebted to that version of post-colonial studies and also sort of orthogonally related to it because of my investment in other world areas. So then the book really became about finding this other cohort that was reading from South Asia and thinking about why it was that this tradition, which really is quite pervasive in the period that I study, doesn't have a book about it already, right? And in the introduction, or not even the introduction, in the acknowledgments. At the end, I have this list of other people that I found along the way who were doing little pieces of this project too, and whom I think in many cases will ultimately publish parts of the story that I didn't get to, especially in the early 20th century and in languages like uh, Bangla that I don't work on. So there's a lot more to say, but I was like, okay, well, a lot of people are interested in this. Why haven't we been able to kind of like talk about it cohesively? And so that became the kind of theoretical pathway into the book. Um, yes, and um, you are um, talking about the global Anglophone uh, literature and how South Asia, as, as you've already mentioned in these universities, is becoming increasing or has been very important uh, in, in this study. Can you tell us a little why, what is first of all global Anglophone literature and why is South Asia so important for this? <laughs> Yeah, well, like no one knows, right? <laughs> so that's the thing is like people debate about uh, what post-colonial literature means. They get really stuck on like what the post and post-colonial means. And they, you know, a lot of the book was actually sort of clearing out different debates about the geography of the post-colonial world. But fundamentally, like post-colonial emerged with a kind of conceptual structure, you know, and as much as we nitpick that structure or who became dominant, whatever, like it had a structure. Anglophone has no structure. And it is sort of like, as I say in the book, it's like arrogantly self-evident, or it seems to be, right? It's just like books that were written in English, not from the US, not from the UK. That's um, my friend Nasia Anam sort of talks a little bit more about how that's the kind of functional meaning of it. And I think that's mostly like not a great development. You know, um, one of the things that it allows is that it allows us to look at people who are writing in English, not necessarily because they come from places that have this really specific and longstanding experience of being colonized by the British and then being, you know, having an education in British literature be this kind of core pathway of um, epistemic violence, basically. So once you get away from the idea that writing in English is always a manifestation of epistemic violence and like the sort of violence of a particular educational practice, you can see different things about it and, and say different things about it. Um, global also implicates sort of globalization and um, material reasons why people speak English, economies and things. Those are all really important. And so what my job what I was trying to do with the invocation of global English was to, I guess, like press pause a little bit on these new assumptions. One that like English is only related to itself. So there's some coherent category called global Anglophone, which completely, completely isn't true. <laughs> you know, um, two, that there is a way in which to study Anglophone literature is automatically and only to be invested in an idea of the world as a sort of 
um, enforced economic unity and, and homogenization, which is what is usually cued by the global. And this came out in a world literature series. And I also, I, I'm sorry to say, don't understand what world literature is and don't really give a shit. <laughs> sorry, I should probably phrase that differently, but it's not intrinsically important to me what uh, an academic structure calls itself that is trying to apprehend an actual phenomenon. What's interesting to me is the phenomenon. And there was, as I say, so much evidence when I started really like looking for it of all these differently situated people who were invested in something that might be called the global anglophone and might be called world literature, but was specifically interesting because it doesn't seem to accord with what we as, as scholars tend to think about as the, the major contours of those ideas. And specifically with the anglophone, what was so interesting to me is like, yes, these are people who are ultimately sort of publishing in English or they're transacting through English, but they're deeply, deeply invested in languages other than English as non-English languages, as a kind of resistance to English. So their fascination with Latin American literature in translation, right, and with particular Latin American figures is evidence of this deeper investment in a non-Anglophone globe that exists and keeps exerting pressure even in what we think of as the heart of the Anglophone. And as I said before, like, why is India the heart of the Anglophone? Well, like, I don't know that it will remain so over time, but we're kind of importing not even a theoretical structure, but almost like a... We're, I mean, we're in a way, we're importing the logic of the British in which India was the jewel in the crown, the most important linchpin around which a lot of other colonial um, sort of exertion was was fixed. So, like, why do we why did the British have an interest in Egypt? It was so that they could get to India and move goods back and forth from India. So there's a lot of ways in which other areas are kind of like the fallout of, of being very invested in India. And so that investment of British power then kind of gets reduplicated in terms of what was for a long time considered the center of, um, of post-colonial studies. And there's, pro there's probably darker, less pleasant reasons why India was the center, but like that's one really easy, plausible explanation. Um, and, and so that is still very much how people outside of these fields think about what's important to have coverage of, um, I guess you would say. So, and you know, like I find India very interesting, so that's fine for me, but. Um, yeah, I mean, what I was trying to ask is that even you talked about this in, in this book is that Ang Indian literature written in English, let's say Anglophone literature in English was not at all important at the time of independence, then at some point becomes really important. And then again, you know, fades away. And what what I was wondering is that why is then India so important for global Anglophone literature? Because if, if if that's a thesis we are starting with, that this is, let's say, a momentary thing, may not last very long, then why is it so important anyway? Yes. So I guess that's what I was sort of trying to answer is that um, it because it is important to the field formation in post-colonial studies. And because Anglophone is kind of importing a lot of its structures and a lot of its theoretical orientations from post-colonial, even if certain scholars are kind of turning away from some of the conflicts that emerges in post-colonial studies, I think that's why. I think it's like a historical 
residue. And maybe in 20 years, it won't be important, but it will still be important in terms of the formations of the fields. So what we look at in terms of the center of, you know, and, and maybe we'll be using a different term, who, who knows, right? But when we look at the formation of the global anglophone, and I'm again, I'm thinking about the, the trajectory of my own career, we are still holding ambivalently onto forms of looking at the world and thinking about power through language that really come almost unchanged from post-colonial studies and that post-colonial studies itself is bringing in from its objective study, right? And recalling it also that the primary object of post-colonial studies in the sort of moment of ascendance of the 1980s, 70s and 80s, is really all about like reassessing British classics and like what the Brits thought about themselves and their power structures. And so of course it would reimport them. <laughs> like, of course it would, right? And so now when all of us are, are increasingly interested in actually talking about literature from the rest of the world on its own terms, interestingly, we're still dragging this big, heavy load of baggage with us. So that's what I was trying to say is like, actually it does have to do with this, the formations of these fields, even as the name suggests that we're moving beyond these fields. Not yet. Thank you for um, clarifying this for me. Um, I read your book as an attempt to argue uh, that Latin American literature is or has been a counter shelf for the South Asian writers. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So what is the counter shelf? Because before I started, I did a simple Google Scholar search for counter shelf and I did not find much. So what is the That's right, because it's my neologist. So I have a friend, Madhumita Lahiri, who also published a wonderful book, um, also thinking about the idea of the Anglophone and about internationalism versus global versus world. What do these terms mean? What do they encode? And she has some words for scholars, because all of us are now encouraged to have our own little neologism. Like I propose the blah, 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 you know, neologism that doesn't have a Google Scholar search already attached to it precisely as a way of kind of like making a brand, which makes it sound really cynical and that's not why I chose to do it, but like it does fit the general mold. So Countershelf is the neologism of this book. And if it had come out with Duke instead of with Cambridge, it, that would be the title of the book, right? Um, and as I say, Countershelf is conceptually drawn from the idea of counterpublic, which now has maybe like 30 years of scholarship associated with it, including a book that I don't cite very much in this book, but that I really like, Laura Bruick's first book, which is about Dalit counterpublics in North India, right? So how do particular groups of readers that stand at odds with a larger group that they're sometimes understood to be a part of, how do they then create reading communities and writing communities and communities of circulation that function differently? So that's the idea of counterpublic, and counter shelf is how does that idea of a counter public get formed through the reading and recapitulation of other people's work, which is fundamental to the way that most writers become writers. Most writers become writers because they were readers and because they have models. And without going into a kind of like Freudian or Bloomian genealogy where everybody's like fighting with each other and trying to kill each other over their mother and all this crap, you know, like um, how might we think about that very real, very common way of affiliating to text as one like having a political life in terms of the formation of these different kinds of global identities. And then two, as being a, a very different way of thinking about these overloaded top-down terms like world literature, or global anglophone. How do people live those 
those concepts individually, but not not singularly, right? These are choices that individuals are making that are influenced by the choices of other individuals around them and by really, really big ideologies and kind of social circumstances. So they're not singular, they're not individual, but they are also very personal. How do we even like get an analytic that that draws us towards attention to that practice, which is actually really common and which like as lay readers, as I say in the book, we all intuitively know is true. Yeah. Yeah. And and how does um, Countershelf stand as opposed to, let's say, Commonwealth literature or post-colonial literature, I mean, the categories that we already have? How would you say this? You know, I talk about this vis-a-vis that very famous Rushdie essay, The Commonwealth Does Not Exist, also sort of very glancingly talking about Rashmi Sadhana's work where she talks about, I think this is in James English's book too, um, about... <sighs> think it's Amitav Ghosh, it's usually Amitav Ghosh, who refused the Commonwealth Prize at a certain point, saying this is not a real category, right? So people are always being put in categories. And they, per James English, they increase their own prestige by resisting categories. You know, so it's not just when you're awarded a prize and you're like, thank you. But also sometimes when you're awarded a prize and you say no, right, the same amount of prestige redounds to you and also to the term that you're rejecting often is, is his argument. So, um, those affiliations, I mean, literally the Commonwealth is, is a political affiliation. And, it, you know, I think even now has certain kinds of political ramifications in terms of like who puts the queen on their money, right? Or who gets to participate in a certain set of games or who is part of different kinds of conferences. Like it's, it's political. It doesn't necessarily have a lot to do with how people identify or what they think that, that their political world ought to be. And post-colonial, you know, like has the potential to be so many things. It can be really exciting, but it has kind of ossified into meaning a very particular set of histories with an artificially narrow timeline that while they are notionally open to lots of different experiences of colonization and imperialism, specifically developed around describing mostly British imperialism, secondarily French imperialism, and then kind of like cut away other kinds of things they might talk about. And so you don't always, and this is the point of the book, like you don't always exclusively find affiliation only with other places that were controlled by the British. You might find really interesting and new types of resonance by thinking about very different experiences of, of global power and epistemic violence and minoritization by looking further afield. Um, so that is, I think, the difference. And again, the, the difference is also the difference of orientation. So one is looking at either governmental structures that then become, you know, uh, analytic structures or analytic structures, which one, as I say, are built out of an analysis of how the powerful think about themselves. And two, are then trying to explain phenomena from that position on high down. What would happen if we really like tried to explain those phenomena inductively without letting go of the idea that we would be able to get to a certain height and have a kind of like strategic vantage on, on what's happening? Yeah. And um, if you could give an example of how uh, South Asian writers are using counter shelf in production of their literature. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so that's sort of, you know, each chapter of the book is looking at something different there. Um, I'm going to go to the Neruda chapter just because it's like the weirdest in certain senses. Um, 
One of the things that was important to me is that people are not, this is not the communist manifesto, right? People pass around the communist manifesto and they all kind of basically get the same idea out of it, right? And of course, there's like factions of Marxist-Leninist or, you know, Maoist or whatever. But like, you know, fundamentally, you read the Communist Manifesto and it has one ideological orientation and you either agree with it or you don't. When you read Neruda, even though Neruda is like an orthodox communist for a lot of his life, there's not just one thing to take away. Right. And so you have people at different moments who pick up Neruda in different parts of South Asia and fall in love with him and recapitulate his style or who are interested in um, imagining an encounter with him, which happens a surprising amount or with his stuff, which is even weirder. They like have this kind of imaginative resonance with with Neruda specifically or with his poetry. And ideologically, those resonances are all over the map. You know, so some of these people are very orthodox communists. Some of them are sort of incidentally political. Some of them are, are very anti-communist. And yet they all like, like this author, right? So what does that even mean, right? And how might it possibly relate to what was already intrinsic in Neruda's writing, especially having to do with his time as a consular official interfacing with, with um, British power in Asia? So that's, I think, what sets the counter shelf apart is that also you can have a bunch of people encounter texts, even texts that seem to have a very clear ideological meaning, and come away with really, really, really different ideas of what it means to be worldly, what it means to be interested in Latin America, and what a particular author gives to them. Yeah. Um, uh, you, you have quoted Sarah Bruyet in your book, who was, by the way, the first person uh, who I interviewed for this podcast, um, who, who states that uh, authors are writing back to the post-colonial market. And um, uh, I can you tell us what is this post-colonial market and how have we moving from uh, writing back to the empire to writing back to the post-colonial market? I mean, what does this shift entail? I mean, I think that's a question for her. I can tell you what I got out of her book. I mean, um, I think that she's she's such a brilliant scholar, right? And I, I really appreciate her attention to the material of the field, right? Um, I think that any model that says that primarily what authors are doing is writing back and that primarily what they're doing is like, is finding a market niche is like a little reductive. And I... I say in the book and, and you know again with, with a lot of respect for her as a scholar like she really doesn't believe in something called literature and a lot of these authors do and that's like a real ideological tension right if you're looking at people who hold a core belief and you think that that belief is merely ideology at a certain point you might not actually be seeing like what they think that they're doing and the way that i think that this really comes out is that in that book that i i say like it's very influential for me and i admire like she's like shocked that people don't want to read a, a three or 400 page novel that's both literally and figuratively like a masturbatory exercise on the part of an old man like excuse me like that doesn't make me a snob <laughs> That I, don't, that I didn't enjoy reading that novel. And if I didn't have to write about it, I would have put it down. <laughs> so, so I think like if you're so withdrawn from the idea that if you believe that taste is only a manifestation of different kinds of power, you might miss like what a normal person thinks that they're getting out of a book and like whether or not you're entitled to their attention just because you happen to fit the contours of like a politically good writer, which is what she thinks that that Zulfikar Ghosh is. And I think he's like a little bit of 
like he's just like a little bit odd by the end of his life, even though he was really important, you know, earlier on, and especially as a poet. So, yeah, so I think that like, I see her work as really valuable because I think that if you're only interested in what people tell you that, um, that they're doing, you're going to be taken for a ride. You cannot look only what at the sort of self-professed, you know, um, commitments of a writer because they can be self-deluded or self-interested too. Um, you have to think about the market situation. This comes up actually in the second chapter where I talk about like who is paying, and also in the fifth chapter, who is paying for the circulation of translations? Who is paying translators to produce certain kind of translations that don't necessarily have a market niche in the 1960s, for example, and early 1970s, or are just emerging into their like anglophone niche at that time? Um, who has a commitment to these circulations. It's particular people with like particular ideologies. And, and, you know, I do want to follow the money, which is a lot of what she does. But I think that that for me, that that is tempered by um, a desire to see what people think they're doing and trying to just like put those two ideas together and see if you can square them. And sometimes you can't. Sometimes what you're revealing is like an impossible, um, an impossible conflict that's not going to be resolved. The other thing I guess to say about that model is that I think that people, I think that there is a really, really bifurcated idea of agency. And I write this, you know, in the introduction where people who are very interested in markets either think that markets determine everything Right. And so the, the author has no agency and like whatever they write, it's just sort of eaten up by the market. Or they think that the author is like a really cynical mastermind, you know, and they really figured out their niche and then they're just like writing, you know. Um, and, and I think Rushdie is often like held up as the premier example because he really hit gold. And he, and he as I say, in my work elsewhere, like he kind of defined a market position for South Asian literature for at least 10 years after the publication of his first major novel. But if that's true, like, why can't Rushdie write a good novel in the last 15 years? You know what I mean? Like, if he's so fucking smart, like, why hasn't he written a good novel since like the mid 90s, you know? So like, even there, it's like, I don't think either of those models of agency work. I think agency is more subtle and complicated than that. And I think the desire to, see, to have this really, really polarized idea of agency is actually a desire to preserve a kind of innocence on the part of certain writers and, and Ghosh would be like a prime example in, in Bruyette's writing where, where he has to be this like victim of like a super cushy tenure track job in Texas. Right. Um, and, and so he has to have no agency of his own in, in terms of choosing how to write, or he has to be like intensely agentle in the, in terms of like refusing actively Go read his letters. Like, that's not what's in there. You know what I mean? Like, he'll tell you what he thinks he's doing. And he thinks he's doing a lot of different stuff. And not all of it is, is you know, committed to this kind of, like, innocent intransigence. And when we see that in his writing, when he's like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a grump. It's like, do you have any uncles? Have you ever met an Indian uncle or a non-Indian uncle for that? You know, like, have you met my uncle? Like, that's how uncles talk. <laughs> that is not, like, necessarily a totally transparent representation of his position in a global marketplace. I'm sorry. So I think there's a kind of weird credulousness and the analysis that I was trying to 
that I was trying to massage because I also think he's in, he, his position is really interesting and he's not totally wrong. It's just like, no, you're not entitled to use up hours and hours of my time talking about how you like hit on your secondary school teacher in Mumbai in the 1950s. I don't fucking care. I'm allowed not to care. It doesn't make me a bad reader. You could go back to Neruda. Um, you have used another concept tool called transmigrant. And again, I did a Google Scholar skirt and I did not find much, although it has been used in migration studies to talk about Neruda. So I, I want to understand from you, um, what is a transmigrant and how can we use this to look at South Asian writers and Neruda? Yeah. Um, well, you're calling me out for using a lot of neologisms. So sorry about that. I was just being cute. I was being cute. You know, initially I was thinking about that term vis-a-vis other authors that didn't make it into the book, authors that are much more explicitly interested in gender performance. Um, and those authors are really cool, but I just, they didn't kind of fit the framework. Um, for me, what was, what I was trying to capture in that idea is literally, you know, translation and migration, the movement of the text and of the person and the way that that movement like actually creates a difference in meaning. So going kind of back towards translation studies and things like that. Um, But then also transmigration, the noun, has a huge genealogy that has to do with the particularly problematic um, transnationalization of um, Hindu and Buddhist ideas of reincarnation, right? Um, and it's and it has this particular sort of genealogy, I think, also with um, theosophy and stuff. And theosophy has a weird role that I didn't talk about here, but in in the promotion of earlier generations of Indian literature, especially Indian Anglophone literature. Um, so I'm capturing here, like, what is this weird, awkward investment in reincarnation? from like a Western perspective in Neruda's case, like that that saturates and helps explain the poetic language of the Residencia series that I talk about in the second half of that chapter. Um, that is like awkward, stereotypical, like orientalist, you know, it's not great necessarily that he's, although some of those, the poetry is really beautiful, but like um, it's not a good look for him. And yet, and yet, as I say, like, that's not like that is the top down like thanks Edward Said analysis of what's happening. Oh, this is Orientalism, and then you have somebody like Lula Gandhi who's like, but wait, what about you know emotions? Right, that's affective communities where she talks a lot about uh, transmigration and, and theosophy as having these political potentialities. That's a debate that's happening way up here. Why is it at a very simple kind of inductive level that all of these very differently situated? Indian and Pakistani writers, many of whom don't have any kind of personal religious investment in reincarnation, nevertheless seem to be using these images of reincarnation um, and of transmigration of souls, like the movement of um, one kind of identity between many different people, right? That's the, and that's what's so beautiful and kind of unlocks the poem, um, the former occupant, right? The Aga Shahid Ali poem that I think is so, so wonderful that opens with this like very, momentary citation of Neruda, but was totally about having somebody else like climb into your body and operate it in a weird like body snatchers way. Like he's Muslim, right? He doesn't believe that that's how, that's not that what happens to you in the afterlife, right? He doesn't believe that. Um, 
for me, what's interesting is that he's using it as a kind of conceptual tool of, of relation across space and time to think about what's happening in Chile in the 1970s, right? Um, which is the, the moment of the creation of that poem, even though I think it doesn't come out until the 1980s. So that's like, that's interesting to me. I think, like, you know, I was being a bit playful by talking about its transmigration, but that's what I'm trying to hold together. It's like literally what is the circulation of this poetry and this figure? And then figuratively, what is this shared investment in reincarnation as a tool of cross-cultural exchange? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, you have uh, talked about uh, the different ways in which South-South solidarities can be imagined. Um, the Russia-supported Lotus magazine was one such place, and you're proposing also the counter shelf as, as one such place. But this is happening at the background of, uh, which you have mentioned, disagreements between South Asian and Latin American understanding of uh, of the world beyond the empire and so there are two concepts that you evoke in the book one is the post-colonial and the other is a decolonial uh, can you address for our listeners what is this different and why is this at all uh, um, important to talk about when you're talking about these solidarities yeah um so i because of the the nature of my training I'm more familiar with post-colonial studies, but because I was, you know, brought in as a Latin Americanist, I have some familiarity with decolonial theory. They historically develop, I mean, some sometimes they hold the same figures in common, like Fanon is really important for both fields. They develop, in terms of the field development, you know, they're, they're kind of like held together. And then by the 1990s, they're pulling very strongly apart. And when you look practically at, at what happens in terms of conferences or in terms of, um, you know, interpersonal fights among these people, they're arguing about history, whose history is important, whose history is going to be centered. What's interesting is kind of we as a, as a scholarly community have really shifted over to like a decolonial conception of time in which what's really important is the resource exploitation, the discovery of the Americas, and then like transatlantic slavery, and only secondarily, like the later relationship between um, industrialization and um, colonization by the British. I don't think people really are trying to stand for that position anymore. So like de decolonial theory won that part of the argument. But um you know, like decolonial theory is also fundamentally, fundamentally based on uh, a centering of indigenous perspectives from Latin America. And it's, I mean, you know, um, trying to be sort of very careful and precise Indigeneity can mean something very specific in an American context, and it can mean something relatively similar in like a South Seas context or in, in like 
Australia, for example, because there is a moment before and a moment after, you know, and there's like a group of people who are mixing and moving around. There's a very, very violent encounter where maybe 90% of those people are wiped out by disease and violence. Um, And then there are like a new set of colonizers who come in. That is not that is not a model that it is safe to apply in India. And in fact, you'll see, you know, most of the time when we talk about India, when we talk about indigeneity, we talk about Adivasis, right? A very specific, smaller group of people um, who have that kind of relationship with a sort of like Aryan, I don't even know if we use those terminologies anymore, because in fact, like they're, they're weirdly imbricated with like racial theories from Europe in a bad way, right? So like, so later, but very, very ancient migrations into India, which encounter these sort of first peoples, right? But people also kind of like lazily and casually talk about everybody who was in South Asia prior to 1600 as being indigenous vis-a-vis the British, Um, And then people use these ideas of indigeneity that come from that kind of perspective in very dangerous, violent, and exclusionary ways, which are really about the creation of permanent minority classes. And other people have written more intelligently about this. But the, the third chapter of the book is where I kind of bring this up, both this kind of conflict of deep history and then more subtly, not explicitly, like the non-translatability of the concept of indigeneity when we're talking about places that have had so many waves of of conquest, of mixing, of really, really long-term living together, and specifically the way that Muslim writers make sense of what it means for them to belong when they don't have an indigeneity claim. And in fact, when they're being very, very violently marginalized because they can't lay claim to a forever indigeneity, but instead are tracing, you know, in some cases, tracing their identity back towards another part of the world. Like, that is really politically important. It's not something that decolonial theory has, to my experience, done a great job of theorizing because it doesn't want necessarily to be applicable to South Asia. Like, you know, people got tired of fighting that fight. So now they're like, we're talking about here, we're centering this when very well-meaning scholars want to extend some of those insights, they have to be very, very careful. And I like, um, I don't address that directly in the book, but I think that that's kind of hovering in the background and maybe it'll be something that I bring into the foreground later when I feel smarter, which is not right now. <laughs> no, that's, that answers my question. Thank you. For me, um, uh, the most fascinating chapter of the book was the chapter five, uh, where you were talking, about endurance of uh, modernist themes and plot, plots in uh, postmodern literature or postcolonial literature. And uh, I am a little fascinated by the term that you have used is called Ravenon modernism. And as a Francophone, I Ravenon is, is also a coast. And, and why did you choose to call it coast modernism, <laughs> if I can say that? Yeah. Well, again, I was being cute, right? So. Um, Yeah, but I think ghostliness is actually one, like if you read any modernist literature, it's like so saturated with its own relationship, and especially Faulkner. So the the core argument of that chapter is actually, let's look at a genealogy whose pieces we know, but not together, one that specifically connects a kind of Faulknerian modernism, the ideological use of that modernism in a kind of Cold War world order, 
its importation into a really important period of Latin American writing. In fact, certain people think that like the the importation of certain modernisms, including a Faulknerian modernism, generates the boom stylistically. And then the movement from there into South Asian writing, where again, because we are seeing the the roots, the ghosts maybe of um, of Anglophone modernism, Joyce. Uh, Faulkner, and to a lesser extent, other writers, there's been a, a huge critical tendency to just leapfrog back to the beginning of the 20th century and be like, oh, there's a connection here. And here's Anglophone. This is why Anglophone makes sense. Well, no, that's precisely where it doesn't make sense, because actually the reason that those representative strategies were interesting was not because people were reading Joyce in school. It was because they were reading Garcia Marquez, like in their spare time, you know? And so that is kind of the, the point that I was making is like, that's what the field wants to see. The field justifies itself when it can say, see, this isn't just a term of convenience so we can associate all these otherwise dispersed world areas. But here we can make these really pretty little genealogies that show you how Anglophone is actually a canon, a canon that speaks to itself or a tradition that speaks to itself. Well, no, it doesn't though. <laughs> you know, So like, that's a convenient reading. It doesn't accord with a stronger interrogation of, of the history, right? Including like you can read, the, you can read these people's preparatory notes. You can read their letters. You can read their, like these other things that they published in the interim, which was really fun for me to find in that chapter. That's what I really enjoyed about writing this chapter. And you could read what they say explicitly in the afterwards of their book. Like it's not a secret. It's not a secret. So why can't you see it? What kind of problem do we have as a reading community um, and we here being academics, that that you can't see something that the authors are putting on very, very obvious display and asking you to attend to, right? So that that was the chapter. And like, I guess I didn't, like I do think about it as ghostliness and there are other people who have talked about revenant modernism and, and I think they're very much thinking about ghosts. But when you look back at Faulkner, um, especially at Absalom, Absalom, which is like the kind of ur text for a lot of these um later writers, that's a text that's like saturated with ghosts. Like ghosts are, I mean, sometimes they're not quite literal ghosts, but they're these kind of, um, these kind of apparitions that appear before the different people in the present of the novel in 1910, who are trying to figure out what happened in the past of the novel during the 19th century. And they literally so often, especially right in the beginning of the book, there's this like coming into presence of Satpen. Right. That's a real image that comes from the novel of him as as this kind of awful, haunting, spooky ghost that nobody can get away from. Right. And that idea of the bringing into presence of something that is technically gone um, and of being haunted by like a malevolent power. Again, like comes from the Gothic, you know, so we're also looking at this big Gothic trail. Um, but it's a really powerful way of, of thinking about dictatorship, especially when people are writing retrospectively about dictatorships that have concluded. So the, especially the, the core of that chapter is the Hanif novel, wherein, you know, Zia has been dead for 20 years. Why are you still so haunted? I mean, this is a rhetorical question because it's easy to see, but like, he's been dead for 20 years, right? Um, what's the urgency around this? And so also, and I think I underplay this in the book, but, you know, per your question, what he's trying to argue for is a re-embodiment of the um, Soviet-Afghan war of the 1980s in the contemporary war in Afghanistan, 
right? And everything that's informing it geopolitically is come, and it's literally the Americans' geopolitical choices in that war that are coming back to haunt them, right? That's the character of OBL is like a real ghost, you know? Um, so, so I think if I were to be even more sort of careful and tidy about this, um, I would emphasize that even more that these are texts that, in a certain sense, are very literally haunted by um, by certain figures that that they can't get rid of, and then the the particular you know revenant modernisms, the the figures you know the rhetorical figures that all of us can't get rid of, they are haunting the books in terms of their structuring. So. You know, <laughs> if that works for you, it works for you. Um, at, uh, at the end of this podcast, I would like to talk about the title of this book, which is South Asian Writers, Latin American Literature and the Rise of Global English. What if I were to say that uh, um, another title um, which would, in, in some sense, for me, better describes the book would be South Asian literature, Latin American writers, and the ri rise of global English. How would you respond to that? Yeah, tell my publishers, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, the first thing to say, no, 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 I, I agree with you. It's actually a beautiful, and I'll get to the, the meat of what you're saying in a moment. Um, I had so many fights about this title. And the thing about, you know, I wasn't joking in terms of if, if it were a Duke book, it would have a different title and then the description would be the subtitle. And the way that Cambridge works is they want something that is searchable, right? And to your point earlier, I looked up all these terms and I didn't find anything. That's Cambridge's nightmare. So they want you to find the book. And they came back to me and they're like, there's no way that we're giving it another title. This is the title. Now you're picking up something really interesting, right? Because From my perspective, I was interested in South Asian writers because I'm interested in this concept of agency as we can apprehend it in literature and also like when we read literature against other kinds of archival objects. So there's a lot of people where I'm looking at their letters, I'm looking at um, other kinds of projects, essays they wrote, um, other projects they participated in because I'm interested in the idea that, um, that the writer does have a kind of agency in terms of how they're thinking about a shelf, right? How they're reading other people. And also in terms of like what we might apprehend about how to set limits around the interpretation of a book based on what that person said about their work. Now, not hard limits. As I said, sometimes like somebody's your uncle and he's just like, he's just blathering because he thinks it sounds cool, but it doesn't, you know, <laughs> like um, sometimes people seem very deluded about how their work circulates. Sometimes they're incredibly perceptive, right? So I'm interested in that idea of the South Asian writers as writers, because when you think about them as an integrated person who produces many different texts, you can look at patterns across those texts and you can think about how that person is confronting a very difficult set of circumstances. Like you're writing for the most part, there's some Urdu writers in the text, but it's mostly Anglophone writers. So you're writing in a language with like a really shitty colonial history. A lot of people even now will be like, why did you write in English when you could have written in Urdu? You know, so people will make that like a kind of sin qua non uh, authenticity test. Right. Um, you're writing knowing that there's a, a readership, a certain readership for your text. That is what Rushdie and other people have called, you know, Raj nostalgia, who have really exoticist lenses or um, like disgustingly, you know, colonial nostalgic lenses that they're trying to put onto your book. That's part of 
so like these are really difficult circumstances. How do people negotiate those circumstances? How might we apprehend, um, you know, how people, so that's why I talked about writers in my book, right? Um, in a different sense, you're totally right. Like the, the identity of the writers that's really interesting are the, the Latin American writers, you know, and people tended to be interested in a particular writer, not just Neruda, not just Paz. We haven't talked at all about the Paz chapter, but it was definitely the most fun one to write. Um, but also Garcia Marquez, also increasing, increasingly Bolaño, Borjas, like other people, um, Cesar Vallejo, who I don't talk about in this book, but would give us a really different, interesting genealogy that's much more explicitly communist. People are attaching to other people, even though other than the case of Paz, they've usually never met these people. They just have an idea. This is somebody who seems to have negotiated something that I'm also trying to negotiate. Or is just cool. You know, so in some cases, it's just like, oh, this person's cool. Um, so if we were to reverse that, then it would be much more about the persona of the writer, which it kind of is in the pause case and less so. Neruda actually, because of the structuring of the chapter, it's de-emphasized. What he did personally weirdly doesn't accord with how people picked him up. And that's a, a fun thing to look at in terms of reception. Um, if I had wanted to write that book, unfortunately, you know, the Garcia Marquez papers came to Texas just as I was leaving Texas and they hadn't been processed until I was pretty close to done with this book. And that's like a giant archive. I'm sure if I had had time to go into that archive, I would have found a lot of gems. But um I, I just didn't, I didn't have the time. And so I'm looking in a very kind of distanced way at what people seem to have gotten from him. Carpentier is another person. I don't even know where all the Carpentier papers are. Um, in fact, some of them are in, in Cuba and you really struggle to get access. So sometimes it's just like you take the path of least resistance. <laughs> and I think that's true for me um, in terms of why the, the orientation is not reversed. And, you know, I guess the last thing to say is like when we focus the agency on South Asian writers, we're looking at the agency of the people who read. And I think that's actually important, although it would have been an interesting book the other way around. I think it's tremendously important to not to treat the shelf of world literature as something that people are forced to read, something that people are sort of slavishly imitating when they recapitulate. And the risk is that if you emphasize the earlier authors, you're saying these earlier authors, you reached from the past into the present and just manipulated these later authors. No, like what's interesting to me are specific choices that people make in, in the present of their writing, reaching back and making sense of the past you know, or of, of different kinds of areas or tradition, reaching out sometimes in parallel, because with Paz, he's a contemporary of the writers that he's, that he's sort of writing with and thinking with, um, and whom, who are citing him, right? Uh, what's interesting to me is, is not a story about how people are forced to do certain things. It's a story about how people make sense of making intentional choices under strong constraints. And that's the book that I tried to write is how do you make sense? How do you make choices when the constraint of the, the language that you write in and it's shitty history, the constraint of how you're going to circulate globally um, and the constraint of like having, you know, a past and even sometimes a present, a past of being colonized, a present oftentimes of being minoritized, being forced to move or choosing to move. Those are really strong constraints. How do you make sense of them? How do you do something creative and interesting within them? Yeah, that makes sense. And I stand convinced. Um, 
Um, since your book was published uh, early this year, is it a good time to ask what your next project would be or do you think you need a little time to answer No, that? weirdly, I think it's the best time because there's this beautiful gap between when the book goes completely out of my hands and when anybody else is going to publish a book review. You know, the, the lag time with book reviews is at least six months. And, you know, I have these conversations from time to time you know, interviews and things, but then no one, people really pull their punches in interviews. They don't want to be like, I hated it. <laughs> what were you thinking <laughs> for the most part? Um, so right now I feel so free. Like I don't have to deal with any of the, you know, inevitable and very legitimate critiques of the book. So I'm just writing. Um, okay. So if the first book is about people who wandered out of their proper area to think about a different world area, and it's a comparison between two world areas that people don't think are related. The second book is a much more geographically constrained question about um, people who work between disciplines which have an unfriendly history. So what I'm interested in are representations of the state of Bihar. I'll tell you two different ways of thinking about the book. The first one is I'm interested in um, Indian writers and how they write about the state of Bihar and also filmmakers to a certain extent. Now, when I say Bihar to you and to some of your listeners, you understand immediately, I assume, like what I mean by that, right? Because Bihar is like completely saturated with negative stereotypes about poverty, about corruption, and um, like a really, really long history of labor migration, things that are fascinating to study on their own terms. And in fact, the construction of Bihar as a region, you know, and here I mean mostly like a kind of epistemological construction of it as a region is getting manifested in all these representations where it's both a place that's um, full, full, it's very fertile, it's full of resources. The part that becomes Charakhand is like incredibly research rich. It's full of people. It literally means like populated place, right? Um, but it's also empty because it's hungry and impoverished and um, it's being emptied strategically of its laboring population to go to, you know, mills in Calcutta to be the major source of um, indentured servitude for um sugar plantations, and then now um, to be the major source of domestic labor in urban India, right? So that's very meaningful to you. It means absolutely nothing for most readers of Anglophone texts, right? Of course it doesn't. So how do these writers kind of manage something that's incredibly intensely meaningful for one community of readers and meaningless for another group of readers? What kinds of um, representational techniques does that require? And then the other question is like, these writers, almost all of whom are Indian, but mostly non-Bihari writers, how do they think about validating the, the kind of realness of these representations through on the ground experience that we might think of through a social scientific lens, especially anthropology, you know, participant observation, especially. Um, so how do these authors make their texts real through long-term embedded fieldwork? What does that investment in fieldwork, like what do we do with it when it butts into the sort of like um, negative sort of figuration of anthropology as the bad other of literature sort of post the reflexive turn in the 1980s? So, so how do we make sense of again, the commitments from up top of a certain um, reading community that is the authorized reading community for these texts in the Western Academy versus like a set of commitments that again, like really just don't seem to accord with that. So that's the same question I was asking in the first book. It's like, how do we 
change the frame so that we can come to observe something that a lot of different authors seem to have valued that just doesn't have a space to emerge as valuable within the frameworks that we're using. I'm really a one-trick pony in that sense. Yeah, and and, uh, as an Indian, I really look forward to reading your next book. I hope hope it's not too bad. Um, Thank you, Dr. Cantor, for being with us and for your wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. This has been a delight.